awesome, what an, what an unusual and awesome perspective that James has as one who grew up with Jesus. Oftentimes, that's not always, you don't always get the most resounding praise from your siblings. But I would say that it is a pretty amazing thing that James, the brother of Jesus, who watched him from birth through his life and death and resurrection, staked his very own life, um, being a follower, being a friend, a follower, and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. James went on to become the, one of the bishops of the church. He was the leader of the church. By AD 50, he was recognized as the, the chief overseer for the church in Jerusalem. And because of, that, because of his leadership in Jerusalem, uh, it would be common or understood that his presence as a leader extended not, not only to Jerusalem, but to the surrounding areas and to the, the places in which Jews were scattered, the diaspora of the Jew, Jewish believers throughout the nations surrounding Jerusalem, areas and nations, but also into the Gentile lands as well. His, his um, reach was far and wide. His... His thoughts were received and, and lived out, and his authority was significant. And so when we see this letter, and as we look at the very first verses here in just a minute, we'll see that he is writing uh, not just to the church in Jerusalem, but to this scattered population of believers um, throughout the world. And I thought about, what would it look like today and we have this privilege. We are not just a church that resides in Waltham, but we have three churches in the area that have been started as a result of uh, different ones, uh, including my family moving up here 20 years ago to establish some local congregations. But we also have, as a local movement, um, missionaries that live in different nations in the world. And, and I thought, what would it be like, or what would I write if I were to write to the scattered Antioch believers, and not only the missionaries, but the churches or the people that they have interacted with and seen come to the Lord and established in their, in their parts of the world, what would it look like? What would be the themes that I would address if I were writing a letter to them, to the scattered Antioch believers in Cambodia, in Indonesia? in North Africa, very, a, couple, a couple of nations in North Africa, in Kenya, what would I say to this church? What would the greetings be? And as I thought about the themes of the lives that are being lived out among our friends in the nations, and not just the nations, but also the areas of our country, to the churches in Beverly, church in Beverly, in Brighton, in Phoenix, what would I write? And I realized as I was thinking about the themes, the themes might be very similar as I encourage our believers and our, our brothers and sisters in these different places to overcome the adversity of the trials that they are experiencing, some coming out of sex trafficking, coming out of extreme poverty, living in extreme poverty, living in places under the threat of persecution, not only of loss of job or ridicule in their community, but possibly the loss of life itself in some of these areas, places in which they have to worship uh, underground, hidden in homes, uh, not uh, permitted to, 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 re to worship in a, in a public place of worship. And, 
in, in places where they choose to worship in a public place at the, at the risk of being known, at the risk of being exposed, at the risk of not only their own life being threatened, but possibly theirs, their families as well. What would I write? I would write, hold on to Jesus. The person which you profess your faith is worthy is worthy to love, is worthy to receive, is worthy to acknowledge. I would encourage them to, to hold on to the believers that are around them, to, to, be, to be strengthened in their relationship with their team and with their church. I would encourage them to not put their trust uh, in the things that they have or the things that they don't have, that they're longing for in this world but to put their trust in the one that will sustain them not only here but forevermore. I would encourage them to look forward to the returning of Jesus. But while they wait to work hard to proclaim Jesus, to don't just merely say with their mouths that they love God, but to live their lives out loud through actions and deeds. I would probably be saying the very same things maybe not pinned on a script of papyrus, but typed over an email in coded words in some locations. Live on for Jesus. Faith in Him works. And this is what James was doing as he wrote this letter to a, a, a people that in, during this time were maybe not experiencing the, the more severe persecution that would come in, in 10 or 15 or 20 years later, but we're experiencing economic dep deprivation, we're experiencing economic persecution, and who were as a result being enticed by the enemy of our soul, the devil, and the, the forces that were opposing the church to, to fight inwardly over these issues, to, to form sects, to form different bodies of people um, separating themselves from one another instead of coming together and trying to work together towards the common good of loving Jesus. This is the rich soil or context in which James is being written, and I want us to look with those eyes as we look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings, declaring his allegiance to Jesus, his Savior, his brother, to the twelve tribes, an allusion to the, <clears throat> to the Old Testament twelve tribes, but basically make, making known, as, as were the twelve tribes of the Old Testament, so in, in completion and representation of the people of God, to the twelve tribes, not literal tribes, but to the people of God, now categorized as those who believe in Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, to those of you who are scattered among the, the nations. I write you greetings, I write you encouragements, I write you exhortations. I charge you, challenge you to live for Jesus. Just a note about this scattering. We see it in Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only, telling the message only to Jews, but some of them, however, men, of, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the, about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. How awesome is it to know 
that whether through volition of our own or whether we are moved on by some other circumstance, that wherever we are, we can give glory and praise and honor to Jesus. Amen? This, this, this disaster, I'm sorry, not disaster. This diaspora, this people scattered, were scattered mainly because of persecution. And we read in Acts that as they went, that every stop that they made, they settled in, and the first thing they did was talk about Jesus. Live for the Lord. I was, was, was reminded as I was thinking about this forced upon um, missionary journey. I was thinking about our friends, the mailers, who willingly left America to go to Afghanistan to preach the gospel. And when they lived in Afghanistan, they not only preached, but they served. And they were part of eye and ear clinics to restore people's vision and their hearing and their health. And they served bravely and valiantly. And then because of the persecution of the Taliban, they were forced out of their nation. And they were forced to move to another location. So they moved to Kuwait. And when they moved to Kuwait, they found an indigenous people that they had been been wanting to reach, that they'd been reaching out to in Afghanistan. And so they started to live their lives serving the, the people in Kuwait, they moved from a, a really poor, sub, sub, uh, living off the land and living off just the basic necessities of life in Afghanistan, a very modest living, to moving to one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Rich, poor, they just kept on loving Jesus. So they, got moved out of, they got moved out of Afghanistan and they moved to Boston. And they lived among us, a foreign people. If you knew the mailers, it felt foreign to them to live in Boston after they'd been in Afghanistan. And they settled in on, in Waltham and started loving their neighbors and started telling people about Jesus. And then God uh, moved them along. They weren't able to make enough money to live in Boston. Surprise, surprise. And so they moved to Texas. They kept on getting moved along this whole journey. They were just wanting to be in Afghanistan. And God moved them through circumstances of persecution, circumstances of their children's development and education, circumstances of finances and not having enough finances to going back to live with family. And now they're in Houston as a part of the church in Houston. And they're the missions directors of, of the church there. And they're sending people to the nations as a family scattered, moved along, not because of necessarily the choices that they would have made, but because because God was moving them along, but every point along the way, whether by choice of their own or not by their choice, they decided to live for Jesus. How do we live our lives? Do we live our lives in trial and testing as if God is doing something significant or eternal, or do we live in pause mode, waiting for the trial or temptation to leave us so that we can go on living? Well, that's what James is addressing as we move into verse 2. Follow with him as he carries on his formal greeting to get into the meat of what he wants to talk about in this opening part of his letter. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces or develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, so that you may be complete, not lacking anything. Consider what? Consider it. What is this it that we're considering? We're considering a trial. We're considering a testing. A trial that James says the trial or testings of many kinds. 
And we already have detailed out what the, this church might be uh, going through or the people might be going through in this time in, 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 in writing the scripture of economic discouragement, of some form of discrimination or some, some uh, schisms within the church. But when he says trials of many kinds, he opens up the box for all trials. Consider the trials and testings of your life. Consider them. Think about them. And, and, and I just started to make a list, and, and obviously on a list of trials and tests, we have to put et cetera at the end of them. But financial hardships, physical health, relationship issues, emotional trial of depression or anxiety or stress, we could go on and on and probably list a hundred different trials and testings in this room. The question is not if we're going to be tested or tried in our lives. The question is, how will we consider it? What will be the result of it as we enter in and live within the trial or test that we are facing? So what do we know about trials or testings? All of us have them. To us, to me included, sometimes we can see them as hard. That's a nice way of putting it. Or unfair. We can see it as inconvenient. We sometimes can see them as punishment or a result of our mistakes or caused by the wickedness of others. There's so many different ways in which we enter into trials. And all of those reasons that I just listed oftentimes are instigators of our trial or temptation or testing. But it doesn't matter how we got into the trial, does it? Let me ask that again. It does not matter how we get into the trial in regards to what we get out of the trial. It, regard, it, it matters how we consider that trial and who we are considering. I want to say this. If it is a trial for you, then it is a trial whether anyone else around you agrees that it is a trial. If it is a trial or a testing for you, then it's a trial. And don't take anybody else's word for it. Oh, you shouldn't be feeling that. Just be quiet. <laughs> Job's counselors we do not need. If you're going through a trial and it's a trial to you, I want you to know it's a trial. And it's okay for you to say, I'm going through a trial. And it's okay for you to declare what that trial is. And God forbid any of us would tell, uh, tell you or me that it's not a trial. Now, I might have gone through that trial a few days ago and gotten through it. It might have an answer for you how to get through it. But I better keep my mouth shut right at the beginning. Because the first thing that we do when somebody goes through a trial is to understand with them and consider with them. It's a trial. Consider it. What you are going through. And if we are walking alongside of those who are going through it, consider with them what they're going through. I thought to myself, okay, what, what, what happens when I go through a trial or what happens when you go through a trial? We want to get out of it, right? Can I just be honest? I, 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 I love what James is telling me here, and I'm going to get lots of good stuff out of it. I've been preparing the message, so I'm way ahead of you. I've been thinking about it. 
But I'm so up with what James is telling us here, but I just want you to know that when I go into a trial, the first thing I say is, God, I'm okay if you take it out of my life right now. I am okay learning this lesson another way. Give it to me by a pill. Give me a shot. Give me a word of encouragement. Teach me in five minutes. I'll take the five-minute lesson every day. But how many of you know that oftentimes we don't learn in five-minute lessons? We don't learn from some quick phrase or some quick kick in the butt. We don't learn often from those situations. We often learn when the trial is a little bit longer than we want it to be. I've been battling some mysterious, and you've heard me talk about it, and sometimes after I share it, people come up to me and they go, brother, I'm just, I just know that God wants to deliver you from that today. And I'm like, amen. Deliver me, God. But if it doesn't happen today, what is my course of action, brothers and sisters? I've been fighting a, a sickness for 10 years. It's, it's better than it's ever been, praise the Lord. And there are victories along the way, but I still have some stuff going on with something that started 10 years ago. And I thought to myself this morning, God, here I am again. I'm about to preach on it. And I'm, I'm still asking today would be better if you took it away from me. You know, like, do it today, Lord. And that's okay. I don't feel like that God is rebuking me for that. As a matter of fact, I think he's saying, I like your faith. Let's believe for it to be out of you today. But until that day happens, until that moment happens, God is using, God is allowing me to learn some things about myself and my God in the midst of a trial. I'm choosing to move towards Jesus and not away from Jesus because he is my faith. My daughter Molly has gone through a hard year this year, and we were talking about it. And for my, my daughter and for many of my kids, the journey that they've been on has been filled with successes. It's filled with, been filled with encouragements. But this has been a discouraging... There's been a, there's been a place of discouragement this year. Not completely, but some of what my daughter Molly has gone through has been discouraging this year. And as we were talking a couple of days ago, there was this place of acknowledgement. You know what? That often... Oftentimes, that place of, of um, trial, that place of discouragement, that place that lingers longer than we want is the place that God does some of his deepest work in us. And oftentimes, rather than it being um, a bad egg, it's a prize. It's a gift that God can use to develop something deeper in us that Paul addresses here as we go on in this understanding this first part of the scripture. The word test um, in the Greek there is, is related to this process of refining gold by fire. And I think that James um, purposefully uses that word to help the reader or the audience understand God is doing a purifying work in you. He's removing that which could lend itself towards impurity, towards pride, towards independence, towards self-exaltation, towards whatever, whatever it might be if everything came easily for us without difficulty or discouragement. 
he's using those moments of testing, of purification by fire to bring out something more beautiful in you. And let's face it, the people that are weathered and worn in the presence of trial and testing and have held on to Jesus and have allowed Him to shape their character and bring humility and bring joy that He talks about. We're going to get back to that in a second. You want to be around those people, don't you? I mean, right now when I said that, I, I imagine as I began to talk about that, that you started to think about people in your life that you're like, yes, Pastor, I... I see that. I'm so glad that they went through that so that I can learn from them so I don't have to go through it myself. No, I'm just kidding. Just wondering if, wondering if you were thinking that. We'll come back to you in a second. God's our greatest goal in life and even in trial. Consider the trial. Don't automatically declare that it's bad. Some of them are, are bad. And even in bad circumstances, God can do something unbelievably good, but don't, don't judge the trial at first setting. Consider it. Why is it happening? Where did it come from? What can I control? What can I not control? What can God do in the midst of it, in the, in the place of my inability to do anything myself? Lord, what is the response that I am to give to you, or how am I to act or respond in this trial? How can you receive glory? Holy cow, there's a lot of questions we can ask when we enter a trial. They can produce good fruit. They can produce not only good fruit for us, but hopefully in the way that we ask and the way that we live, it produces good fruit in those around us as they watch us walk through the trial. Don't react to what you feel, but what you know. And what you know in a trial, honestly, most of the time is very little. But the one thing that you do know, you don't know necessarily how long it's going to last, you don't know necessarily how it's going to impact you. You don't know, necessarily know what the long-term natural effects of your trial are going to be or the financial effects or whatever the trial is. You don't necessarily know a lot of things going into the trial, but one thing that you know is that God has promised that He will dwell with you in the trial. That you can find Jesus in your trial. I loved Fidelia when she got up. She was talking about this journey of being a mom with four children without her husband in a foreign land that she has never lived in before. Um, walking into a place where she didn't know a soul and her hope was in the song of the Lord. Her hope was in the purpose and the promises of Jesus. And she walked into this place of unknown confidence because of a relationship with God. She considered it, and she found it to be true joy. What do we know? That if we choose hope in God, we know that God will produce joy. We know that God will allow us to find hope in the midst of every circumstances. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8. James is reminding us that the ultimate delight of a believer in Christ is God. Our ultimate desire, our ultimate delight in this world, in this journey uh, that we are passing through. This is only a speck on the, on, the, on the line of eternity. In this season, may it be our prayer and our aim 
that we find Jesus to be our comfort and our encouragement and our joy, including in those times that are trial. But when you read that, maybe the first time I read it, when you said James is writing this, this passage of Scripture, he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials. You thought about that person, didn't you? Oh, Mr. Happy, always happy, always smiling and telling me everything's good when it's not good. I know that, James. Wouldn't have gone to his church. Consider it joy, Sean, when you're facing that trial. That's how you read it, isn't it? You're just like, right, right, buddy. You consider your own joyful trials. I'll consider my miserable trial. Few coarse words to talk to you about. Sound godly to me at all. Be honest. What? It's impossible. Joy and trial should not go in the same sentence. Joy comes after the trial. Now that we could all agree with. Trial over, party. Joy over, out of my life. But joy in? Only one way. It's got to be Jesus. There's no other way. But in that challenge, whenever I, when I finally said, okay, I'm going to read this and not recoil, and I said, okay, I want to find out what it is. The challenge itself is almost as exhilarating as the reward. Are you telling me that I can find joy in a trial, a testing, that I actually can be filled with hope and joy in the midst of something that's not over yet? What a promise that James is telling us about. And so I want to remind you the old smiley that wrote this letter, old Mr. Positive that always sees a rainbow in every situation. He lived in a poor church, in a persecuted church, and he ended up being martyred for his faith. So he's not some shallow, rah-rah person. He is someone who knows that at the core of his existence, in the midst of his discouragement, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his hardship. I don't think he's making light of it. If you read through James, you're going to see that this guy's got bones in his teaching. He's saying, I can tell you this because I found it. I can tell you this because I found it. And I can tell you as a 49-year-old pastor that even though I've walked through trials and I haven't always embraced them in the right way, I can tell you that I have found joy with Jesus in my trials. And actually, when you find Jesus and his encouragement and hope in the midst of a trial, you forget about trying to get out of the trial. Amen? Anybody been there? And you realize, you know what? With Jesus in this place, I can go a little bit longer. As a matter of fact, God has to remind me it's okay for you to have to get out of the trial. I don't, I don't necessarily want to do this forever. It's not my eternal plan for your life. You know, but Jesus, you're here. There's an encouragement that we can find in the hope. So what if I don't know what to do in the trial or if I lack perspective? He goes on in verse 4 and he says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts 
is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So when we're in a trial and we're saying, God, I want to find you in the trial, or I, I want what, God, what James is talking about, this joy, the place that we find the joy is by calling out to Jesus. Calling out to God for wisdom. Whenever I see wisdom in the New Testament, I almost automatically insert Jesus into the place of wisdom because Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is wisdom. And so if we want wisdom, if we want understanding, if we want knowledge, if we want help in figuring out a circumstance, the best way to get that wisdom is to find Jesus. It's to connect ourselves with the living God and say, God, what would you do? How would you help? What are you saying? We know, Romans 8, 28, that God works together all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Jesus, where are you in this trial? What are you saying? What are you doing? The very act of being in a trial is a defined, what we do at this juncture is, defines what our relationship with Jesus is like. If we ask with faith, believing that God will answer, it defines that Jesus is real to us and he's a friend and he's our savior. If we ask either for a superstitious religious answer from God, you know, I rub my rabbit's foot, God give me my, the, what I want kind of prayer. Or if we ask and we go, I know it's not going to work anyway because God, you know, there, you know it's still going to turn out bad for me. Or whatever kind of ask that we have that's filled with, the, with the, the doubt that God actually can do something about it. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. We can, have, we can have questions about, God, how are you going to work this out? We can have questions about, God, I don't know if I can make it through this. We can have all of those, feel, those feelings and still ask by faith. Are you following me? It's when we believe that we can't believe that God will actually do anything. It's when we doubt and are unstable in our, in, our, in our even perspective of whether or not God is real and he cares about me. That we should begin to take a step back and say, God, do I really know you? Because the reality is, is if God forgave you and saved you, he's not ever going to leave you or forsake you. If God has chosen you to be his son and daughter, why would he leave you in a trial dead for nothing? You are his prized possession. You are the delight or the apple of his eye. There is no question, no doubt in my mind that when I go through a trial, I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know how he's going to end it. I don't know what the circumstances are going to hold for me. I don't know how hard it's going to be. That doesn't matter. What matters is I'm on the right side of the equation because I'm with God. And if God is in my boat, then the boat's not going to sink. Amen? It might go through a storm. There might be trial. But if Jesus is here, he's winking at me and he's saying it's going to turn out okay. That's what James is talking about here. If you are in a trial, don't pull away from God. How many of you have been around people who... That trial happened. Might not have been the first trial. It might not have been the fifth trial. But that trial happened. And as a result, they said, you know what? I'm, up. I'm done with God. Well, we realize that when that happens, the trials that happen, 
you, you don't go through five trials with God or ten trials with God or one trial with God, whatever your number is, and then the certain trial that doesn't deliver the way that you want it to be delivered, you say, God, you're not good anymore. Somewhere along the way, we missed what God was doing in us in the first place or wanting to do in us. I've got a friend who came from a broken family and found God and lived passionately and purposefully for him, but he never found his mate. He never found his spouse. And in his mid-30s, he said, that's it. I don't know if I can trust you anymore because I'm not married. That's a tremendous temptation. He went through a long trial. But at the point of, of his place, and I have no idea what God was doing in his life. I have no idea why, long, why it was so long. I have no idea what the internal choices or, or temptations or struggles that my brother had that got him to this place. But what I do know that if he was there at that moment in his life and God was still with him, there was a plan that was going to be redemptive and wonderful for him if he would have held on. But he, choose, he chose to let go. Don't let go. James is saying, consider the trial, call out to God, move towards God, and find your hope in your resilience. And what does it say? Your perseverance that leads to maturity, your hope in Jesus. And we skip down to verse 12 just to, in that passage. And right before that, he, he, he shares a, an example of, of Poor people and rich people, and I don't have time to go, go, go back to that, but you study that on your own. But I want to end with this. He says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that was what I was emphasizing right there, is that if we endure with hope towards Jesus, then it will work out. And it will not only work out with maturity and perseverance and reward in this life, whatever that looks like. But it'll work out at, at in reward in eternity with that victor's wreath, that running across the finish line celebration in heaven. You did it. You didn't deny me. You didn't lose faith. You persevered. You kept proclaiming. You kept acknowledging that I'm good. Ben, come on up. <clears throat> so how do we respond? Where are you today? When the word trial or testing came up, what emotion did you feel? Did your palms get sweaty? Did your heart race? Did maybe anger come up? Did, did a discouragement set in? Or, or did you go, Lord, yes, you have something to speak to me. Wherever you are, whatever you entered into this conversation feeling, I want to say where you are now is what matters. It doesn't matter how you responded when it first came up, but as you've heard the word of God, where is God calling you to today? If you're in a trial or a testing, God's calling you to consider it. And he's calling you to consider him in the midst of it and to call out to him. God, where are you? What are you doing? I need your help. Would you help me through this? I believe that you are with me and that you're in this boat with me. And God, I'm asking for your grace and your encouragement this morning. If that is you, if you're in a place where you're in a trial and testing, 
and this word hits you at a time where you're saying, I needed that this morning to keep on persevering and keep on going. I want you to come forward and I want us to pray with you. Stand up. Everybody stand up with me. Give people a chance to squeeze out of their aisle. But if that's you, come on up. We want to pray for you this morning. You're saying, I'm in it right now and I don't want to turn back. I don't want this to be the defining moment where I doubt or I question if God is even with me. I'm saying, God, you're with me. I need you right now. I might not feel you. I might not understand what's going on. I have a lot of questions. But God, I'm putting my bet on you. I'm trusting in you. Is that you? Come on forward. I'm going to pray with you right now. Here's more of you. Just wait a few more minutes. Or a few more seconds or however long. You're coming forward is not an, an acknowledgement of failure. It's an acknowledgement of faith. It's an acknowledgement of, of, of hope. God wants to speak into your circumstance. We're going to have people come and pray with you. And I'm going to ask those who pray. Ask the Lord for wisdom. This is James 1 moment where you are agreeing with this person saying, God, Jesus, where are you in this trial? What's the wisdom that you have for those who are coming forward? So if that's you, if you're a prayer of God, look around. We've got lots of people up front. If you have a, a stirring in your heart to pray, come and lay a hand on one of these people. Ask them what's going on or if you already have a word for them, begin to pray. Encourage them. And if you're standing in the congregation just as we worship, continue to pray and allow the Lord to minister to you, but also minister.